Here we go on a Monday night, and we're excited. It's time for Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Most of the shows phoning it in across the country, not here on Ira on Sports. We keep it active and locked in. Ira's always got something up his sleeve, and Ira not in studio. You have a good reason for that, though. Tell us where you've been and what you're planning on doing. I was at Yankees, uh, Mets last week. So I was part on Wednesday night. It was the largest crowd, or Tuesday night, was the largest crowd in Yankee Stadium history, in the new Yankee Stadium. And everyone knows how I love tennis. I love the U.S. Open. I'll be going almost every day to the U.S. Open here for the next two weeks. So I, I'm excited about going to the U.S. Open. I was thinking about doing some football for uh, for uh, your week zero games and whatever. Oh, actually, the week one games. But instead, I'm going to be uh, going to the U.S. Open. And then at the back end, maybe catch a Penn State game, catch maybe even the Jets game. So we'll see. Yeah, this Ira, this is the time of year when you get really busy and also have to make difficult decisions every week on where you're going to be. And I think you were saying you might – dial back on Penn State a little bit and focus more on maybe some NFL or some bigger college games? Penn State's not ranked this year. I'm not going to – never don't ever say I'm going to dial back on Penn State. <laughs> but clearly, uh, I want to see some different stadiums this year. Well, I know the third week of the year, Penn State plays at Auburn. I'm excited to go down there to Alabama. I've been to uh, Tuscaloosa to see Alabama play, but to see the Penn State-Auburn game is going to be super exciting. But, no, I'll, I'll get my share of Penn State games. But I do want to catch some other stadiums if I a chance to go to a stadium I haven't been to before in the college football. And one of the reasons why that Yankee game might have been the most attended is because everyone follows Ira on sports across social media. Knew you were going to be there. Everyone wanted to meet you at the game. So make sure you follow Ira on sports anywhere you get your social media so you can hang out with Ira and see what he's up to every day. So, Ira, I I don't know if the PGA Tour could have drawn this up any better, could they? And, you know, we talked a few weeks ago. Maybe there was collusion in in penalizing Cameron Smith. I don't know if there was any collusion in Rory McIlroy winning the Tour Championship, but congratulations to him. It's a very, very positive thing and a good look for the PGA Tour to have one of their favorite athletes uh, being the champ once again. What a what a tournament! I mean, it was. I, I hate the scoring system. I know they have to put it in there because they want to have like a FedEx Championship. You want to give Scotty Scheffler a lead. He started the ten under. Uh, Rory started four under. It's so complicated to go through the whole how that worked. But Scheffler looked like he was cruising. I mean, it, 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 there was moments on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday when he was six to seven strokes, and it was almost like I'm watching it on Friday, and I'm like. He's about to go nine strokes ahead, and he just couldn't put that nail in the coffin of the field, go that nine or ten, just couldn't go further up. And uh, finally, you know, he, he played great on Thursday, great on Friday, great on Saturday, and Saturday fouled into Sunday because it rained. So to finish his six holes on Sunday, he has four birdies in six holes. Do you think he's really going to cruise along? And then he finally has his bad round Sunday afternoon, shoots a 73, and opens up the door by, for Rory to have this charge where he shot a 66. Rory shot a 63 on Saturday, per se, or the third round, at 66 on Sunday. And Rory ended up winning $18 million, $26 million now total in the year, his third tour championship win. And uh, it, was like, it was like one of those things where he's a poster child of the PGA Tour, while as Phil Mickelson is the poster child of uh, Live Tour, and for I'm sure, I mean, the, the smile that Jay Monahan had on his face was uh, just, he was ecstatic. I mean, the last thing they wanted was Cameron Smith to win this tournament, but clearly they were happy that Rory uh, won this tournament. And, you know, maybe me more than you, but I've been pretty down on Rory for, 
I don't know, five years, feeling like he's the guy who just kind of can't close it out. He's he'll be have a, a the you know the best round of of the entire week on Friday, but he just doesn't seem to have what it takes to finish a lot of these big tournaments. And here he is. I mean, does this propel for you him back into the stratosphere of that best golfer in the world conversation? No, because the tour championship is not a major, and I think that's the key thing. And, and, and he stuck at its four majors, but uh, you know he started at four under. Scheffler was at, at, at ten under, and then he triple bogeys his first hole. So he so he was down at the first hole of the tournament. He's down ten strokes. Uh, I felt like on Sunday he he hold out from a thirty foot birdie on fifteen on a par three, and then the tie, and then on sixteen. He almost blew the tournament. It, the, his ball was flying over the green. It hit the flag stip, st- stayed there on the green. He's able to, to hit a 10-foot putter for par. Scheffler missed the par putt, giving Rory the lead. But on 17, Scheffler missed a 10-foot birdie. On 18, when his chance really his one stroke ahead, I mean, Rory hits it. You know, Scheffler hit it into the sand trap, and Rory hits it in the grandstand. And he wasn't really – so it wasn't really you – know, he, he parred 17 and 18, but he scrambled for a par. But he opened the door – for Scheffler to, if Scheffler had got a birdie on the hole, would have, would have you know, put it in a playoff. Then Sanjay Im was one stroke back. But no, I, do I put him, do I say this uh, exercises all the demons? No, because you just want to see him do this in the majors, not in the tour championships, which is a huge event. And it's a lot of money to the event, but it's still not a major. So, you know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned Sanjay Im. Good showing from, you know, people that we're going to see in the Honda Classic field between Sanjay Im finishing tied for second, Sepp Straka, the reigning champ, finishing seventh. Kind of a good sign. We know we might not see the best field we're possibly going to see, but some of the guys we may see playing pretty good golf right now. Maybe they can keep it going into February. Well, I mean, look, the PGA Tour has decided that they're going to make some events $20 million events, and now with, with the defections from the Live Tour, it's going to give players like Sunji Hima a chance. You know, when all, the, when all the other players leave and you're left and you're pretty good yourself, then it's going to advantage for them to do. But no, Sunji Hima was in the mix. Uh, I thought he had a double bogey, uh, double bogey earlier in the, in the end of it on Sunday. Might have put him in that mix in terms of uh, forcing a playoff with Rory. But, no, great tournament from Sanjay. We know he played – we know Sanjay loves to play tournaments. <laughs> he's almost <laughs> every tournament that's out there. Uh, and he had a good win in the Honda. But he's really – it's been struggling since. I mean, some of the people said, you know, he should be dialing back his game. Don't play so many. I think uh, for knowing him, he said, I just like to play tournaments. That's what I like to do. Ira, he's the only guy on the planet who gets more frequent flyer miles and more hotel uh, credits than you. <laughs> Sanjay M is constantly on the move. Um, you know, I, I forgot to mention, by the way, Ira on sports, true all these channel david moranis is going to join us right about 7 40 he's a great a great uh, journalist author currently associate editor of the washington post tell us why we're talking to david well he wrote the a book uh, he wrote a biography on barack obama wrote a biography on bill clinton wrote a biography on vince labardi which considered the best books of the year but really the book he just wrote now just came out last week on jim thorpe jim thorpe is considered by many the greatest athlete of all time uh jim thorpe was the best football player in America. He was the Patrick Mahomes. He was the, anything you want to say, the best football player, Aaron Rodgers, player at the time. At the same time, he then went to play Major League Baseball. Wasn't the best baseball player, but he still played Major League Baseball for many years. And he then went to the Olympics and won the decathlon by the highest score and the pentathlon by the highest score ever. It's never been broken since then. It was so dominant. So that just shows you why he's considered the greatest athlete of all time. Now, he didn't play golf, but uh, <laughs> I think if there was golf out there, he probably would have been an excellent golfer at the same time. I- I'm sure. I'm sure, Jim.
Chip Torp could uh, find his way around a golf course if he needed to. You mentioned the Live Tour. Where do we stand with this, Ira? Any any new rumors about people defecting, or you know, what's the what's the story here? Because I haven't heard much on it since the rumors of Cam Smith. Well, they want. I think the golfers who are playing in this event, they wanted to sort of tamp everything down until after the event. So they have Boston next week, then four more tournaments. Still don't have a TV deal. The big name that everyone's talking about is Cameron Smith. Cameron Smith finished, uh, in, I think, sixth or seventh here uh, at this event. But he uh, is definitely he's number two in the world. He won the uh, British Open. He's 20 years old. He's everything. You know, he's the face. That, he's what the PGA Tour wants their face to be. But now he is going. He's probably going to be one of the star. You know, the star of the Live Tour. But with him, it's everything. He's going there. And Yaki Neiman, who from Chile, Amito Pereira. Those are, I saw Neiman at the Genesis, and the rumors that he's going to be defecting to the Live Tour. I, he won the Genesis, played lights out uh, there, was really playing at the well, great at the beginning of the year, not so much at the end. But he's, again, he's only 23 years old, number 18 in the world. And uh, Amita Pereira, we saw at the PGA Championship, you know, had a chance to win and then blew it at the final hole where Justin Thomas was able to come up and win. But uh, but those are those are three names that they're talking about. Mark Leishman, who's 63rd in the world, has six score wins, another Australian. Uh, Cameron Tringle, the only one who actually announced on Twitter, uh, number 53rd in the world. And Harold Varner, who is one of the best African-American golfers on the tour, a very popular golfer, just really a big fan favorite. He is uh, rumored to go to the Live Tour. And some names that were supposed to go, I mean, Cameron Young... it's, it is almost like Phil Pelichek with him. I mean, you know, you hear rumors that Cameron Young is going, that he's not going. Hideki Matsuyano, the same thing, going or not going. So I, I guess when the Boston, we'll see what happens this week to, throughout the day, today, Tuesday, Wednesday, what, what happens. But definitely, it's almost sure that you're going to hear Cameron Smith, Yaki Niva, Nito Pereira, uh, Leishman, Tringle, those, those golfers, which just gives more credibility. Remember, there's only a 48-player uh, field for Liv, so they are really filling that up with the top players in the PGA Tour. So it's they're almost going to be even tours. If you would take, I mean, if you would go one through 48 at live, one for 48 at PGA, you're probably going to have even fields. I, I agree with you on that wholeheartedly. Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Don't forget, at Ira on Sports. Find him anywhere on social media. So you mentioned, Ira, U.S. Open kicks off today. You must, you've been to the U.S. Open, what, 15 times? I mean, this is like, a, this is a, a yearly thing for you. Yeah, I've been to US Open. I love going there. I've been, it's just, I think it's a phenomenal. I, I'm glad the first week I can just bounce around to the outside, uh, outside courts. When they mean outside, anything outside of Ash, right? Ash is a big 20,000 seat stadium that you see on TV all the time. It's super expensive to get the good seats in there. And so you don't want to waste your money the early rounds seeing Djokovic, or he's not playing this year, but seeing some, see even Nadal winning O and O because he's playing a weaker <laughs> opponent. You want to go to the outside courts and see some of the top players. You can see almost every top player. They only play during the day. They play two during the day in the Ash and two at night. So like four matches, and there's hundreds of other matches. So that's why it's so good to go either the grandstand court or the court 17. There's so many other courts out there where you can sit. It's like going to your uh, just like a tennis center where you live, just a place to watch. You know, like say you had kids playing tennis. That's how close you are to the action. So that's what's so fun about this event that they have so many big names, and they can't all play at Arthur Ashe because they're only having four matches a day there. It kind of reminds us of why we love, you know, pro-ams and stuff with golf because you get really up close and personal with these people. It's much less crowded, makes for a very, very enjoyable experience. So going into the U.S. Open, what are some of the uh, what are some of the storylines you're following here? Well, no Fed, no Roger Federer. He's still recovering from his knee injury. No Novak Djokovic because 
as everyone has been thinking, he's not vaccinated. But there are vaccinated, unvaccinated American players playing it, but he's not vaccinated. The U.S. Open said, if you found a way to get here, we'll let you play. So it's not up to us, but it's the U.S. government is saying he's not allowed in. So he's not playing, and that's upsetting. Because he's going, you know, he won, he won Wimbledon, had that great win at Wimbledon over Kyrgyz. People are excited to see another Djokovic-Nadal battle in the finals, something crazy, great matches. No, 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 no back Djokovic. And no Sasha Zarev, who last year, uh, Zarev, uh, the German, went to uh, uh, the, he was uh, finished in the uh, in the semifinals where he lost to Djokovic. So Djokovic and him, I was at that match, like five sets, crazy late Friday night. That really tired Djokovic out for the finals. But you're not having Zarev, no Djokovic, no Federer, and the storyline really is Medvedev coming back trying to defend his title. See what's going to happen with that. Uh, the doll is in the field. He looks healthy enough. He was a little injured there at Wimbledon. Had to, to withdraw from Wimbledon at the semi finals, but he's going for his 23rd title, which is an all-time record. So I'm excited about that. Looking at the field, the top half of the draw has Medvedev and Tsitsipas. So we're talking about this on Iron Sports, Tsitsipas, forever about how <laughs> he's from Greece, 6'5", can serve, can volley, runs around. I mean, he is, he is like, when they say the Greek freak, he is like Giannis, you know, on the court. Just does everything out there. Um, Kyrgyz would play Medvedev in the round of 16, but if you saw Kyrgyz play in Cincinnati, and there's pictures of him just having a wild time here in New York since he's been here for the first three days. I expect him to get knocked out tonight in the first round. I don't think he's really focused. He wants to go back to Australia. He doesn't seem really into this. And when his head's not into a match, he, he, he usually loses. Um, FAA uh, from Canada, he's number six in the world. He was crushed by Medvedev last year in some finals. He's still in Medvedev's draw. And then some Americans are on that top half of the draw. Taylor Fritz, who you saw how great he played at Wimbledon, he would play Titsipas. And other Americans are Sebastian Corda, Blake Sheldon, who just from the University of Florida, who just became pro, just declared us become pro, J.J. Wolf, Max Kresge, Tommy Paul. And there are a lot of Americans that could do some damage in the men's field. I, really, I, I can't wait to see the Fritzes, the Pauls. The, I, I think this is the year that we're going to see Americans go into the round of uh, the quarterfinals, the round of 16. You're going to see Americans make noise. These are Americans that were maybe too young a couple of years ago, but I think especially Fritz and Paul, you expect uh, Fritz to, to have a nice run in this. The bottom half of the draw is Rafael Nadal and Carlos Alcaraz, uh, the young Spanish player who was, you know, tremendous number. He's number three in the world. And Sinner from Italy, who's played Alcaraz before, they seem to be meeting in all these tournaments. They're, uh, they're going to play. And then uh, Silic, who won the tournament a few years ago, is also in that draw. And Rublev is in Nadal's side. But, you know, you like, you like Nadal to go through. You like Alcaraz. I saw Alcaraz when he won Miami. He played great there. Uh, Nadal won the Australian Open. He's, you know, of course, a great hardcore player. Uh, and Medvedev, defending champion. So I think the question when you look at this is, you know, Titsipas, could he be upset by someone? And that would be one of the things. Um, and, then, and then on the bottom side, you have Isner, McKenzie McDonald, other Americans that might play a role. And then on the women's side, the big issue is Serena. It's a, that's what everyone wants to talk about. It's tonight. That's why the tickets are so expensive. She's going for her 24th major. I don't know anyone who thinks she can win this tournament. She looked not in good form in Cincinnati at all. Hasn't really played in almost two years. Uh, I think it'd be impossible. It would be, it would be, it would be greater than the Tiger Woods storyline if she ended up winning the tournament. I, I see her most likely losing tonight in the first round. Uh, the top half of the draw is Iga Swiatek, who's the number one in the world for a while, won the 30-some matches. But Sloane Stevens in the second round from America, and she's won this tournament. She could she could beat Swiatek. And there's also Amanda Astanova and Jessica Pagula on that side. I mean, tons of Americans all over the place. And then on the other side is all Emma Raducanzo, 
from uh, England who won it last year. Uh, Daniel Collins is going to face her in like the second each couple rounds could upset her. Uh, but I think that's where I like that. In the bottom half, you have Sockery and Halep, but then you have Madison Keys. Coco Golf is T to 12. I mean, Coco Golf right now is 19 years old. You know, we've seen, it seems like Coco Golf should be like 25, 26, <laughs> yeah. but she keeps getting better and improving at a steady pace. Again, from both the men's and women's side, you just, it's just littered with, with players from America that I think are going to make nice runs in this tournament uh, and see what happens. Because as with the women's game, Sweetix has been getting upset. The number two player, Conovitz, has got upset. I, I really think it could be wide open for American women also. Going talking about the men's side, uh, Medvedev is the favorite at plus two twenty five. Nadal's four to one, plus four hundred. You think it's a fair bet to get four to one here on, on Rafa Nadal here? I mean, I, I always like him to win tournaments. No, I think that's a great bet because I, I, I the doll showed against Medvedev. Like the doll knows how to play Medvedev. Like they were in Australia, and I, I that was the one. What the Bengals were playing the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game, and I stayed up all night <laughs> watching that match. And I was like, "Am I going to be going to be over for the game?" And the, and and Medvedev was down. I mean, Nadal was down two sets to none, losing in the third, and he still comes back over Medvedev. The doll's the perfect player because he just plays hard against Medvedev for that long. And I think if the doll can stay healthy, I think he's the player to beat over Medvedev. I think if you put him in the finals, those two, I'm putting the doll to win that as long as he's healthy. But uh, no, I think. Look, Medvedev has this great game. He's uh, just a powerful serve. He gets uh, goes. He's so tall and gangly. They seem to get to every shot and can hit winners from every side of the court. And look, he won last year. Beat Djokovic. Stopped Djokovic winning the Grand Slam. A great, you know, one of the greatest hardcore players. Doesn't play well on clay. Doesn't play well on grass. But no, I like. I would put my money on the doll. You could never bet against the doll, especially without Djokovic in the tournament. That makes another big thing. There's no Djokovic that could beat the doll. Let's uh, let's take the uh, four to one there and take it to the bank here. It's Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. David Moranis, author and also associate editor of the Washington Post, joins us at seven forty. Ira, what's going on with Formula One? Well, last night, I mean, we want to say it's over, and it's over. I mean, last year. Formula One, which everyone's watching. I was in the Hamptons at a restaurant at 9 in the morning, and I had it on my – people looking over my shoulders. Everybody – I might have been five people had that on their on their phones watching it. So it's not like this crazy thing that I'm the only person who follows Formula One. Everyone's following, it seems like. But Matthew Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton went to the final lap of the final race where Verstappen, I think, got – Lewis Hamilton was robbed. It was ridiculous. But anyway, this year, this is going to be over – Verstappen might not have to run the final three races of the year because he has such a huge – he started 14th because he changed his engine and they so you put in the back of the, the field of 20 and after 12 laps out of 44 he's first and then he just cruised i mean just told forget what tires he was on or whatever he just cruised he could have won by the race by as much as he wanted he easily won and uh and and that now gives him a 90 point lead over sergio perez's teammate and sean leclerc from ferrari at 186 it's not even close i mean at this point now verstappen is it's just there's that it's almost impossible to see how he cannot win the tournament win the championship this year with eight races to go uh exciting moment was lewis hamilton and fernando alonso they were teammates at mclaren well they crashed and right at the beginning of the race, and Hamilton flew in, in the over the air. It seemed like like 20 feet, and uh, landed on the car. Kept driving, but the car was so damaged he couldn't continue. So he was knocked out of the race. 
blamed himself for the accident, which you don't see a lot of drivers do. Uh, what, but they, but so he blamed that was my fault. I should have done that. But Alonzo could heard on the radio. It's like Hamilton. He can only win when he's in first place. He doesn't. He only knows how to drive when he starts on the pole or he's in first place. Which I don't think Hamilton liked to hear about that. <laughs> one. But Verstappen has won what nine out of fourteen races this year. He's won the last four, and as I said, just cruising along, uh, not even close in terms of uh, with, with eight races to go. What about uh, some NASCAR action? Great. You know, I feel bad for NASCAR because, as everyone knows, in Florida, the weather was so their, – their, their prime event was Saturday night at Daytona. Uh, it was the last race to get into the playoffs. Well, it was delayed because of rain. Sunday's delayed. Everything is messed up. And they finally are racing, and the whole race is marred because it starts to rain on the track. They keep the cars out there, and you have a car a, a pileup with, a expected like, 25 cars, so was, and only 18 cars were at the end. Austin Dillon won, which put him into the playoffs. You have 16 cars. If you win, you're automatically in. And then the last position was because Kurt Busch pulled out because of injuries. So there was one position on points. Ryan Blaney, Blaney just barely beat Martin Truex for the final position. So they have the 16 cars set. There's 10 races. One of them will be in Homestead in Miami, uh, 10 races to finish the year. And they just get whittled down from 16 to 12 to 8 until you're down to the final four for the last race. This is Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. Mike Balsamo here as well at Ira on Sports, where you follow anywhere in the world on social media. Got to talk baseball, Ira. It's crazy that there's really only about 35 games left. So we're looking at maybe five, six weeks of baseball. You've been to some great games this year. And one of them was last week when you saw Yankees-Mets, and as we talked earlier, largest crowd ever at Yankee Stadium, the new Yankee Stadium. Playoff atmosphere. I I, I have to say, I've been to Yankee Stadiums for the playoffs. That was playoff atmosphere. Uh, the fans were in the game. I was I got to the game an hour and a half before in batting practice. The stadium was almost all full. I mean, it was it was it was crazy. I and and it was a good mix. It was about sixty percent Yankee fans, forty percent Mets fans. They were screaming the whole game. Uh, it was loud, uh, and uh, it was just it was what this rivalry. You want to talk about rivalries in sports? Yankees, Red Sox, Yankees, Mets might be the best because you have two teams if they're both playing well in the same city. Like you're not going to get Dodger Anaheim. Like eh, there's no rivalry there. I mean that's not much. I don't. The Cubs and White Sox. They're supposed. The Cubs are so bad. I just can't envision that being a total <laughs> rivalry. This might be. The, I mean, clearly the best rivalry in baseball. And, and maybe in all of sports because you have such a rabid fan base and they're right next to each other. I mean, there's you had families where you had mother wearing a Yankee jersey, dad wearing a Mets jersey, daughter wearing a Yankee jersey, son wearing a Mets jersey. Like they're all sitting there together. Uh, the uh, it was it was it was it was it was, it was a crazy game. That and, and, and the game ended up being I, was, oh it only ended up good. I thought the game was great the whole whole game. Yeah, and l- let's talk about it. You know, the, the Yankees, if people remember, they started their really rough skid in a two-game set with the Mets, where they got beaten both games, and the, the wheels kind of came off completely, Ira. And then they come in, and like th- they know they've got to get business done against the crosstown rivals. They can't just give up you know, bragging rights until a potential World Series matchup. And the Yankees did what they had to do, and hopefully, you know, for me as a Yankee fan, this writes the ship. I wasn't completely sold on Frankie Montes. Their uh, acquisition from the Oakland A's hasn't looked uh, quite as good as Luis Castillo, who the uh, Mariners got from the Reds. But this is a step in the right direction as the Yankees start getting some wins. Well, Montas, that first inning, was he threw 28 pitches. I mean, it looked like he couldn't even I – mean, have you ever seen a team, a pitcher throw 28 pitches, the team not score any runs, they had bases loaded when they finally got an inning, but it seemed like every batter was like a five strikes. It was five, five, six, seven pitches. 
that was a crazy inning, the fact that he was able to survive by that. And it same thing happened top of the second. The men, the Mets ended up, I think, with 12 to 13 men left on base. Like, they kept getting men on base but couldn't score. And, uh, and then the bottom of fourth judge hit a home run. Uh, that was you know key home run, the two-run home run. And then in the top of the fifth, Marty for the Mets drives in a one run in, and then the second runner was caught uh, at home play. That was an exciting play. I mean, to see, you know, again, this series was good because there was a lot of men on base moving. It wasn't just home runs the whole time. The Mets didn't hit any, and the Yankees had one. And then uh, McDeal drove in Alfonso in the top of the sixth to tie it. I mean, Glaber Torres had the ball. Doesn't throw home, and Alfonso, who clearly is not the Alonso, is not the fastest runner of all time, is able to run there and score and make it two-two. Terrible play on Torres' part. You see this with the Yankees; they're they they seem to have great defenders, but they make stupid mistakes in the field. That was a very dumb mistake. And then even the Mets made an error. Alonso Alfonso made a, a terrible error where he, he dropped the ball, but that was. Uh, uh, that was key. And then bottom of the seventh, Benetton, he singled, and Judge singled, and made it 4-2. Chad Schmidt, Chad Schmidt for the Yankees, comes in three innings, doesn't give up a run. But again, everything, every inning, he's like, bases loaded. Uh, first and second in the eighth inning, ninth is bases loaded. He finally, they pulled him out. Wander Peralta came in and got Lindor out with the bases loaded at 4-2. But uh, that was, a, what a game. What an exciting game, and the fact that Chad Schmidt made it. But I think the weakness of the Yankees, you saw, they have no closer. They had no one. They had to keep Schmidt in that game. They finally brought uh, Peralta in, but they really just don't have a way to close these games out. Their pitching is inconsistent, and they're just trying to figure out. But I, I, it was a they ha, it was a game they had to win. But uh, uh, I, I still think there's problems with the Yanks, and they lose two to the A's. They go to the Oakland. And Oakland doesn't even try, and they lose two games there. <laughs> no, yeah, it's never good when you lose to Oakland. Those are the teams you're supposed to. You're supposed to win all. You know, every single game time you play, then and not even drop one uh, game in the set. Uh, it's interesting you bring up the Glaber Torres uh, gaffe that he had there when he allowed the run to score. He's getting crucified in, in the New York media for that, and rightfully so. It was a boneheaded play. But, Ira, did you happen to see that the Marlins and the Yankees had a, were very close to pulling a deal which would have included sending Glaber Torres here to Miami in addition to uh, a young prospect Oswaldo, Oswaldo Peraza? In return, the Yankees would have gotten Pablo Lopez, great young pitcher who I would have liked to see, and also Miguel Rojas to kind of fill in the spot for Glaber Torres. A lot of people were saying that's too much to give up for those guys. I kind of would have pulled the trigger on this one. I, I love Pablo Lopez. I, w- I would have done this deal with the Marlins. I don't know if you saw it. No, well, you know, the point about Glaber Torres is I think Torres is someone who people felt was going to be this next Derek Jeter uh, player, even a Robbie Cano player. I don't think he's coming. You know, now he's just a good player. Like, he's, I think he's at that level where he's, he's getting to the age where you're like, he is what he is. So, I mean, it's like you hope he might become this superstar Yankee, but that's more pressure to even re-sign Aaron Judge because from the Yankees' perspective, he is their star. There is no other star on this team. Stanton, to some extent, whatever, not really, but the injuries and everything. But that's why Torres has not really put the mantle on and said, okay, I'm – you know, like you, at the Mets, you have Alfonso and Lindor. He's not Lindor. He doesn't play that well. So I think that's one of the points. But, you know, who knows? I mean, these players develop later. Maybe they'll start hitting better. But I guess I think that's the, from a Yankee perspective. I, the love affair, I mean, everyone thought Torres was the next year. Jeter, clearly not. No, and you're absolutely right about that. It's a very good point. It, was, it all came from that Chicago Cubs team. After Theo Epstein built this kind of juggernaut out of young players, won a World Series, and then they kind of dismantled it. But we've seen... Labor Torres doesn't look like he did or, or what his prospects were. Javier Baez was the same thing. They thought he was going to be, you know, on a Hall of Fame career track. Didn't happen. Chris Bryant hasn't been as good as he was early on. So 
maybe it was a little, I don't want to say bait and switch, but there was some smoke and mirrors there to what these players were going to be, and they kind of never developed, and that's why I'd be okay with parting ways with him. Right, right. I think that I think that you don't be surprised if he gets traded. Especially the Yankees do not perform well in this postseason. Let's talk about uh, where we sit with the standings. Yankees did take a big tumble. It was a 15-game lead at one point. It's been cut down a lot, Ira. Where do we stand? Yankees are seven and a half over Toronto, nine over Tampa Bay, nine over Toronto, ten and a half over Baltimore. I mean, shocking to say these teams. I mean, it seems crazy. And then the White Sox. Every, you know, how many people predict the Chicago White Sox to go to the World Series? I saw. Back. They're not even gonna. They're not gonna over Cleveland, who Cleveland was dismantled. I mean, Cleveland's rebuilding, and they're still leading the division. And Houston's eleven and a half over Seattle. So really, you, they're down to these four teams: Tampa Bay, Seattle, Toronto, Baltimore for the final quote three wild card spots. But it's really Houston and the Yankees, and really Houston are gonna. If not one of those teams, I'd be shocked. But those are the teams that I think it's the American League players are not going to be that exciting per se as compared to the National League because Houston and Yankees just seem to be such a prohibitive favorite. And then in the National League, the Mets and Braves. I mean, the Bra- they lost. The Braves lost last night. They were pitching a no hitter in the seventh inning, but the, the, the lead is only three. I mean, you're looking at a situation like last year, where the Dodgers and Giants had the two best records in the National League. And then the Dodgers, because they, you know that was the challenge, you know they ended up winning and you know going to San Francisco, winning the games and everything. But that it did help the fact that they had that huge record, not getting the home field advantage. Uh, but the Dodgers are 20 games ahead of the Padres. Cards are six games ahead of Milwaukee, and it looks like from the wild card, you know, Atlanta's in. Either Atlanta or the Mets are going to be in, and, and one and two of the three are either Philadelphia, San Diego, or Milwaukee would also be there. But the Dodgers, 88 and 38. I mean, they are going to have this tremendous record. I looked at, you know, I criticize Dave Roberts all the time. I think his postseason performance is horrendous. But, I mean, this will be his fourth year where he's going to have, like, over 100, 506 wins. And this team could win 115 games. I mean, they could set the all-time record in baseball. Uh, they even stay at the, they're winning at a 70% pace uh, without Bueller, without Kershaw. It's just crazy how well the Dodgers play. Uh, but uh, but and that's another team. And then this week is exciting because Dodgers, I might catch that game. The Dodgers are coming into City Field and playing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in City Field against the Mets. So, Ira, I don't want to – call it buyer's remorse, and, and it's too early to, you know, kind of put, put the book down on this thing. But not for nothing, the Padres have been bad since they made these trades. Not even not good. They've been pretty bad. Juan Soto, very sluggish since the deal. Finally starting to pick it up. Josh Bell has been a shell of himself. Been terrible since they brought him over. And Josh Hader, who may be the most consistent reliever of the last half decade in the league, has been terrible as well. And you've also seen, you know, players that were carrying the Padres, like Jerickson Profar and Jay Cronenworth, they're now pushed from batting 1-2 in the order to batting 7-8, and surprise, surprise, their batting averages are tumbling as well. As a result, do you think that maybe the Padres made a mistake here? When the trade went down, everyone thought it was a huge win, even though they gutted their farm system. I'm a, if I'm a Padre fan, I'm kind of looking at this like, I don't know what we got into here. Well, I think they, I mean, look, they thought they had Tatis. I, I, the fact that Tatis is going to miss the, uh, half of next year, too, is a problem. 
uh, this is it's a mess for the Padres because you made, you made these moves and like they're going all in, they're ready to do it, and then the Dodgers extend extend their lead. I mean, I don't think when the Padres made the move they thought they were going to catch the Dodgers, but they were going to be in a position to say, okay, we're going to get through the wild card rounds, then we're going to go and we're going to be positioned. Now they lose Tatis. You know, Tatis was ready to come back. He was in in, in, in uh, development leagues or whatever, getting back from his injury, and then he gets suspended for steroids, and now you have the Soto problem. It is it is a mess. I, I, they are certainly going to run it back next year, but if, if you're a Padres fan, you're going to be you're upset. I mean, they they are clearly the most disappointing team, especially what happened to the Tees and the fact that the Dodgers. I mean, there is that hatred between the Dodgers and Padres, and the Dodgers seem to just win with ease. <laughs> and it's not they can't just beat like it's like when the Red Sox couldn't beat the Yankees over all those years. It's like whatever the Red Sox did, it was never good enough. It was never good enough. The Yankees would always win until they got Schilling and the, all that other stuff and that Ortiz and that that and they. That that's what the Padres thought. They thought with Tatis that that was going to be a difference, but it, and and Soto, but it's it's not proven to be that yet. Well, you heard it here first. Ira nailed it, and it was with good reason that Kevin Durant was not going to get moved anywhere. And it looks like he's one hundred percent staying in Brooklyn for better or for worse. But this was something, Ira, that you were saying, I, I can't see this happening. There's just no suitor for it. The market's been set too high, and you were absolutely correct. It, it, this trade never made sense. Nobody, they were never going to trade him because nobody could trade him. There weren't the teams that out there that sort of could make this trade. There was one team that could have made the trade, Golden State. They had the young players. They had talent. They could have made that trade. They didn't want him. Durant was already there. He left. They didn't want him to come back. They were the only team that could have made this trade. If Golden State wanted to make this trade, this would have been. Other than that, there was no team. The Boston idea was not a trade. That wasn't going to happen either. Um, and finally, I mean, Durant made that comment. And also when Durant made the comment that I want the GM, if this would have been behind the scenes and silent, maybe something, I doubt it. But when you make the demand that the coach and the general manager have to be fired for me to come back, now the coach Boston, and GM that you hired. The coach of GM that you wanted. <laughs> yeah, right. And and you box them in because if Cy did that, then it's like, you know, you might as well run the entire team. You know, and so they couldn't. He sort of boxed the Nets in. Nobody, there was no suitors out there that they felt they could make the trade. When the Suns signed Aiton, that wasn't even in the mix. And the Nets, from the Nets perspective, which I said from day one, it's like, look, you've assembled this this motley crew of players that could work. Let's see if it works. I mean, let's see if Ben Simmons, like what I've always said with Durant, with Harden, it's like you want Durant shooting 30 times a game. Like he's the best shooter in the game. Let him just get like Curry. Just let him shoot as much as he wants. Let Kyrie shoot. Those two should shoot. And then Joe Harris, who's back from injury, is going to take open shots. They signed TJ Warren, who played, people don't remember TJ Warren, but two years ago in the bubble, he's like the best player in the bubble. He's amazing. Scoring 40 points a game for the Pacers. He's on the team. They got Seth Curry on their team. They got Claxton, who's developing as a center on the team. They have talented players. This could work. And Ben Simmons, if Ben Simmons chooses to play, what's great about him, he has to take shots. That's good. Like, there's some teams that need. When he was on the Sixers, you had Embiid and Simmons. You wanted Simmons to shoot. You just want Simmons to play defense, get rebounds, do that. That's what they need on this team. Like, he's the perfect complement to let Durant. If the, but there's all these ifs. Can, can Ben Simmons keep his head in the game? Can Kevin Durant stay healthy? Can Kyrie decide he wants to play? Can Joe Harris stay healthy? I mean, it's if, 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 if. They get off to a bad start, Stephen Nash is fired. I mean, he's going to be fired in like a month easily if it, if it gets off a bad start. But the other challenge the Nets have is that if they're even the number one season in the regular season, that's not good enough. If they lose in the first round playoffs, Stephen Nash gets fired. Like, the standard for this team is <laughs> beyond belief. There's no, I mean, really, get to the finals. If the Nets don't get to the finals, uh, Nash will be fired and, and whatever. They might, they might then at the end of next year trade 
Durant. But the point is, they, they owed it to the fans. They owed it themselves to put this all together, not to break it apart now, and to see what could happen. And, and that's what they're going to try to do. And that, that's what I never thought. I, I, I never thought Durant would be traded. So I, I think that Kevin Durant has a little bit of a, like a little brother syndrome. I think that he thinks he's as good as LeBron James, or he's had as big of an impact on the game as LeBron has, and he just hasn't. He's won two titles with a team that just won a title. You went and joined the, the champ. So, you know, congratulations there. But, you know, that's why, you know, when LeBron des- decides he wants to call the shots, he gets away with it. He gets more leeway because he is the champ. He might be the best player of all time. He's won on his own. And Durant just hasn't done that. And, and since I bring up the Lakers, Ira, we didn't talk about this, but what's your thoughts on them acquiring, acquiring Patrick Beverly? Not that it's a, a weird trade. I mean, he, he's a good piece to have, but... It's well known that him and Russell Westbrook hate each other. So this could be the end I, of Russell I, I Westbrook. I, I don't I know. I can't imagine. This is like Tommy Pham and uh, Doc <laughs> Anderson. The two people got in a fist fight over, over fantasy football. Uh, Beverly has injured Westbrook. It, Westbrook had the ball once, and I thought it was a cheap play. Beverly literally – Westbrook was just dribbling the ball in the middle of the game, and Beverly just dove at the ball. Like it was like the final out of a baseball – of like whatever, a football player with the last play. It dived, rode at his knees, and then injured him. Not only did he dive at his knees, but he injured him. And then I've seen them play since, and he's done the same thing again. Like it's almost like I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep diving at your knees. And if you're, as you're a player – like and I think Beverly is like like it's a bad move, it's a cheap move on his part. You shouldn't be diving at players' knees in any sport. And they hate each other. They literally hate each other. And and the Lakers acquired Beverly to play with Westbrook. Like it's going to be a disaster. Like Westbrook will never survive the practice. Like they'll be fighting. They'll be fighting the entire time. Uh, I, so I. But clearly, it just shows. I don't know. It's a weird move. Everything the Lakers do is crazy and that makes no sense and if you look at all the moves what the lakers have the biggest problem they have is they don't have three-point shooters that's what's been the problem day one you could name all the players on the team they don't have three. beverly's not a three-point shooter so they keep making these moves none of these moves make any sense this team is a mess just about five minutes or so till we get to david moranis here on ira on sports so week zero is in the books ira i never heard this term until this year and i hate it already but it's week zero then they call it that because well, it's football, but really none of the big schools are playing here across the college landscape. We did see a couple of good ones, so let's talk about what happened here in week zero. What happened in week – well, I think the only week zero game that was that was really big was the Nebraska-Northwestern game. And, and I feel so bad for Scott Frost. Me I too. Mean, Scott Frost is – uh, under you were talking Central Florida, you know uh, UCF it was you know the undefeated team, the team that was the national championship, but the hottest coach in the country had played at Nebraska, played there, was their superstar, came home to Nebraska and has just in the last three years done nothing, terrible. He goes and plays Northwestern. He's a 10, 12 point favorite in Ireland over Northwestern. They're dominating the game, and then he goes and decides to go for an onside kick when they're up by, what, 11 or 12? The game turns. They end up losing, and it's just like, oh, my gosh. I mean, again, it's, I feel bad for Scott Frost because I think he's a really good coach. This situation just is not working out, and then he, just, and then he says, it's my fault. I never should have done that play, all those things. Yeah, and you know UCF, I think would take him back with open arms, and I, obviously it was a better fit than Nebraska. And I, I do feel bad for him too. Like you said, this was a guy; his trajectory was sky high, and we, you know, as Florida fans, we like to see UCF be good. I, I wished him the best, and really not working out for him there. Um, what else were you focused on uh, from last week? Anything? 
No, that was one of the big games. I mean, I think what I was going to just go over a little bit. I mean, this next week game is this week's going to be cool. I mean, you had some great games. The West Virginia Pitt haven't played in a decade. They're going to play again. West Virginia's in the Big 12 pits in the ACC. Pitt's favored by seven and ranked 17th in the country, which I think is way too high for them. Uh, Penn State's at Purdue. How about Penn State's not ranked? Unbelievable. Penn State not ranked a team. Uh, Oregon is at Georgia. Georgia's favored by 14 and a half. And Utah is at Florida. That's an even game. Utah's seventh, seventh ranked team in the country. And the big game on Saturday night is Notre Dame at Ohio State. Now, Notre Dame's ranked fifth. Ohio State's ranked second. But the line is 14. So it clearly says that they feel that North Notre Dame is way highly overranked. And you see that, the, you know, how many times have we seen the last few years where teams that have been ranked in the top five or six don't even get into, like, they're barely getting the worst bowl game by the end of the year. So, but that was uh, in, terms of, in terms of what I'm looking for next week for the games. Ira, would you like to um, throw out any predictions here for what we're going to see this year in the NCAA? Well, let's go to the SEC first. I'm telling you, there's so much love for Georgia. And I have tons of Georgia friends. I, I don't know. I mean, I like Stetson Bennett, but they lost Georgia. And George Pickens is great for the Steelers. He's going to be amazing. I can't wait to draft him my fantasy team. I don't know. I mean, the SEC East with Kentucky, Florida, Mississippi, I mean, Kentucky, Florida, Missouri, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Vanderbilt. And certainly Vanderbilt's not going to make any noise. But, you know, could Tennessee – I just don't think – people are putting Georgia automatically winning the SEC East. They're putting Georgia automatically in the SEC playoffs, I mean, in the NCAA playoffs. I don't see it. They've lost a lot of players, and they're not like Alabama that loses players and has others. I'm nervous. I'm not, I'm not picking Georgia. I think someone else, I don't know if it's going to be Florida. I don't know if it's going to be Tennessee. Someone is going to upset. I think someone else wins the East. I think Bama wins the West. I don't think A&M is as good as people think A&M is good. So I think Bama is going to – Bama, as, as I use Nick Saban's comment, they were in a building year last year, and they lost in the fourth quarter at the national championship game. <laughs> um, so, but, they, of course, the SEC West with Arkansas, Mississippi, Mississippi State, Auburn, LSU. Can't wait to go see that Auburn-Penn State game. But I'd like to see Bama. So I think it'll be Bama. I, I can't throw up who I'm going to think in the East is going to win, but I don't think it's going to be Georgia. The Big Ten, I mean the East with Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State – Maryland has improved. Indiana and Rutgers. I mean, this is this is going to be really hard for Penn State and for those. But Ohio State looks loaded. C.J. Stroud is just. I mean, he looks like NFL ready right now. Like he would start. If C.J. Stroud said, "I'm going to start play for Seattle," I think he's the starting quarterback <laughs> for Seattle day one. And then the West has always been bad. It's sort of like the SEC East and the Big Ten West are the the weaker divisions, even except for Georgia. You know, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Purdue. Everyone thought this was going to be Nebraska's year. Then they lose the Northwestern. So I, I like Nebraska, Wisconsin again. I mean, I think Wisconsin will win that. But uh, And then we'll just go to the ACC. Clemson, last year, three losses. They thought it was, though, this terrible year. This, I think Clemson's back. I think they're, I think they're going to – I think this, this team is reloaded. I think they're going to be in better shape. I like Clemson to win the ACC, the Atlantic. And then in the Coastal, you know, you want to say Miami. Like I got a good feeling about Miami. Pitt is there, but, uh, but, you know, that you finally have a quarterback in Miami you believe in, the coaching, everyone's excited. This team's going to play better. I like Miami, so I think you're going to see Miami-Clemson. Finally, what they've been wanting for all these years was, was, was Miami in a championship game against, like, a team like Clemson. And then real fast in the Pac-12, uh, can Lincoln Riley at USC – I mean, it's not like the old days when a coach came in and said, oh, give me a few years, i got to recruit. Lincoln Riley brought in, like, 15 transfers. Like, he's bringing people from everywhere. So USC could be the best team with Utah and Oregon uh, from day one. And the Big 12, 
is you know how much is left of the team Oklahoma that he left, and you have both, they have a lot of good teams in the Big Twelve. I know Oklahoma Texas are going to lose. I think the big question with Sarkeesian and Texas, what's Texas going to be? I, just so many questions about that. And then Independence, you know, Notre Dame. See what Notre Dame does and what BYU does. But um, I like for the College Bowl playoff, Alabama is in, Ohio State is in, I think Clemson is in, and. I don't know who the fourth will be. I'm going to throw out maybe USC. Maybe Lincoln Riley's just good enough coach. He's going to get enough of those wins and, and get in there, and they, they're going to put him in for that. Let's go to David Moranis here. It's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports. Uh, we're very excited to have David Marinus on talking about his new book, Path Lit by Lightning. David, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Absolutely. I'm glad to do it. Um, your book is on Jim Thorpe, and I just interviewed Jeff Perlman, who is working and his he has a new book coming out on Bo Jackson. And when we talk about Bo Jackson, a lot of people are like, well, who is Bo Jackson? They're like, well, he was like Jim Thorpe before whatever. And people are like, whoa, they don't know. So after, we're yeah. yeah, after. So we're really going back. And I just put Jim Thorpe's life in perspective. Um, 1950 was named the greatest athlete of the first half century. And then ESPN in the century of the 20th century said Jordan, Ruth, Ollie, Jim Brown, Gretzky, and then Owens and Thorpe. He was seventh. So just sort of put him in perspective in terms of his overall, uh, you know, athleticism and this. Well, all, all of those rankings are kind of meaningless in a way because you can't really compare athletes from different generations because of, the differences in training, in diet, in coaching, equipment, all of that. Um, but Jim Thorpe did things that were unparalleled. No one else had done them before or since. No one has won two gold medals in the decathlon and pentathlon, been an all-American football player, the first great professional football player, the first president of what became the National Football League, and a Major League Baseball player. Um, along with that, he was a great ballroom dancer and could play ice hockey and even marble. So the guy could do anything and do it almost better than anyone else. Um, it, it was it would be almost like Patrick Mahomes uh, won the decathlon and uh, also played baseball in the spring and was uh, truly exactly. amazing. You know, I'm glad you brought up uh, Bo Jackson. You know, Jeff is a friend of mine and. And we've talked about, you know, comparing Bo Jackson and Jim Thorpe. Bo Jackson probably could have done really well in a decathlon as well. You know, he just didn't happen to do it. Um, But when people ask me who's the modern version of Jim Thorpe, I say probably Bo Jackson. Maybe Jim Brown, you know, who also was a great lacrosse player and football player and probably could have done anything. But there are very few people at that level. So he grew up in Oklahoma. He was uh, an American Indian. And your book totally highlights the idea of that time when the wars really were over between fighting with the American Indians. But it was sort of like there was the Indian elders that wanted to keep their preservation, the reservations, those things. And then the American government that wanted to assimilate the American Indians. And he was sort of caught up in that whole battle between both sides of that. Yes, he was. At age 16, he went off to the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, where the motto was, kill the Indian, save the man. You're right. This is after the the, the, uh, Indian Wars, the genocide of the middle 19th century. Um, But the idea then was that the only way that Native Americans could survive was by being completely acculturated and assimilated into white society. 
And that's what these boarding schools were attempting to do, to rid the Indians of their language, of their religion, of their culture, their heritage, cut their hair, um, dress them in their uniforms of the U.S. Cavalry, and try to totally assimilate them through that process. That's what the boarding schools did, and that's where Jim Thorpe was for the crucial uh, years of his adolescence and early adulthood. I grew up in Altoona, Pennsylvania, so was, I drove by okay. Carlisle all the time. And actually, when I was in Altoona, Carlisle had a great uh, basketball team. Billy Owens, Michael Owens, some players people remember from the NBA played. Oh, wow. at, pl- yes. Yeah, played at Carlisle, and it was they were supposed to be Altoona and was supposed to play Carlisle in the championship. Altoona had uh, Division One basketball players on their team too, and they never met. Uh-huh. They never they never met in the finals, uh-huh. but. So Carlisle, um, he's there at the school. He wasn't really athletic in terms of an a- athletes and everything, but you tell this story, whether it's true or not, about how they were jumping. It was almost out of like a Superman movie. There was high ju- right. They were high jumping, and the best high jumpers at Carlisle were there, and he was wearing his overalls and said, oh, let me try it, and he broke the school record, I guess, just in his overalls. You know, there are a lot of apocryphal stories about Jim Thorpe. That one happens to be basically true. Um, you know, I've documented that from enough different sources to believe it. Uh, you, you're right. He had this was 1907. Um, he had just come back from an outing working. Uh, they sent a lot of the, the young students to farms to work for for white families. He just come back from that. Um, he was in his overalls. He walks by the track, sees the bar at something at six feet or more, and nobody else is jumping it, and he clears it in his overalls. And the next day. He was in Pop Warner, the coach's office, and on the track team. And within a year, he was a star of both track and field and football, and it all took off from there. Yeah, you mentioned Pop Warner. This isn't the Pop Warner League. This is actually Pop Warner himself was the coach of the team. There was a person yeah. named Pop Warner. And you talked about how we mentioned Carlisle. It's like, but Carlisle in those days wasn't just, I mean, they were playing Penn State. They were playing Michigan. They were playing Ohio State. They were at the top of the tops. Army, Penn, the Ivy League schools were the top. They were the elite yeah. of all, in all sports. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because uh, Carlisle wasn't exactly a college. It was an industrial school. But they competed against the best teams in the country. Um, in that era, Actually, a lot of the best teams were in the East Coast, which is hard to believe now, but Harvard, Penn, Yale, Princeton, uh, Army um, were dominant teams, and Carlisle played them all and beat them all decisively. My favorite uh, football game in Jim Thorpe's life happened in the fall of 1912 when uh, the Carlisle Indians played Army. You know, the Indians against the Army, and the Indians thumped them 27-6 to on a level playing field at last. <laughs> <laughs> that was, and he was the star player. He was a running. He played, of course, both ways. Was the star running yeah, back? Sixty minutes, and uh, and also played. I guess what you call linebacker in those. Or what was position would he play on defense? Really, you know, it was kind of a defensive back slash linebacker. The the uh, award for the best college defensive back is the Jim Thorpe Award. So he, he could do both of those things. He, he covered. You know, there wasn't as much uh, forward passing in that era. So uh, it there's more involved of tackling, but but he was a defensive back linebacker, and not only was he a great left halfback and a great defensive player, he was also a brilliant kicker. He could punt the ball 70, 80 yards. He was a place kicker. He won many games with his field goals and and in that era drop kicks. 
Um, so he literally could do anything on a football field. And then you mentioned in the book how he took two years off after he was named third team All-USA and Carlisle. He then took two years off and just played baseball in the summers in yep. North Carolina, which, of course, came back to, to haunt him. But that was just his ability to play all around sports, all different types of sports. Yes. And literally, uh, Ira, hundreds of college athletes were playing summer baseball for minimal pay, two bucks a day or $30 a month. And most of them, to keep their amateur status, were playing under aliases. Dwight Eisenhower, the future president, played under the alias Wilson in the (laughs) Kansas State League. There were so many uh, players playing under phony names in the Eastern Carolina League, where Jim Thorpe was, that they called it the Pocahontas League because everyone was named John Smith. So there was... and. Jim Thorpe played under the name Jim Thorpe. He never tried to hide it. It was in the newspapers in North Carolina you know, for both of those summers. Um, but then after he won the gold medals in Stockholm, uh, the story sort of broke wide open and his medals were rescinded um, unfairly, in my opinion. Yeah, you mentioned how in 19, he went back to Carlisle in 1911, 1912 as a football player and was considered the yeah. top football player in the country at those times. They didn't really have the Heisman Trophy or anything back then. Um, his team was, be- you mentioned the one game against Army, his 1912 team just was beating everyone, like it had 194 to 7. So it was just dominating. <laughs> Uh, but just that was sort of cemented his uh, legacy as being the best best football player, and that's one people thought he's one of the top football players of all time. Yeah, I think that that Jim Thorpe in 1912 probably had the greatest athletic year of anyone ever. Um, you could argue because he, that's when he won both of those gold medals in Stockholm, then came back and was the fabulous All-American football player on a dominant Carlisle football team that fall. And you mentioned about the Olympics. It wasn't like he just won a race or two. He had 15 events in the decathlon and the yep. pentathlon. In the pentathlon, there were five events. He won four of the five in the whole thing. In wearing the wrong shoes, everything, you know, what could go wrong? And he just was dominating uh, the entire thing. And the whole world got to see uh, how fantastic he was. Yeah, 15 events in about two weeks, um, which is, you know, draining. And he, he dominated in both of those both the pentathlon and the decathlon. Um, it's hard to compare that again with, with the past or the, you know, or the future, but, but he won by a larger margin than any decathlete uh, ever. And you're right, for a couple of events, his shoes went missing, and he, and he competed in unmatched shoes. He had to wear two pairs of heavy socks for one of the shoes because it was bigger, and he still won the event. Yeah, it was, your book it, it tells, I love the story, you have George Patton, I mean, all these famous people that were competing in those Olympics, and that Patton, right. you know, Patton was competing also. But it was just, and the fact that after the Olympics was over, and the king of Sweden uh, gave him the medals, and they gave these big medals, besides, you actually said it was the last time they gave gold medals out, and said, you're yeah. the greatest athlete in all the world, and that sort of set him on with the whole world, then realized how great he was. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know uh, a year later, when he was in Major League Baseball, he was on the New York Giants, and they traveled the world with the Chicago White Sox. It was a world tour. They went to Japan, China, Australia, Egypt, and Europe. And there were a lot of famous players on those teams, and along with Charles Comiskey, the owner of the White Sox, and John McGraw, the manager of the, of the Giants, and um, Tris Speaker and Sam Crawford, two Hall of Famers. 
the rest of the world didn't know any of those people. They knew one player on one team, and that was Jim Thorpe on the Giants. He was the global famous person. Oh, and you mentioned the book. He, they met the Pope. The Pope knew who he was. King George of yep. England knew wherever they went. Exactly. Uh, just, just a, what a tour. I think there was like four or five months. They traveled every country. We're, we're in Egypt by the pyramids. They were in Japan. They were in Europe. Uh, what a tour for baseball. I, I think baseball maybe should do something like that now in terms of spreading the game. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, the, you, you touched on the fact that there was that scandal when it came out later about they took his medals. And, and I just saw now in the media, uh, it's now that they they've restored everything to his wreck finally after how hundred yeah. some years they finally got around to it and I did notice that the the person who was second place when they stripped him of his of his medals he said I'm not taking it he dominated me it was it was Hugo something and he goes Thorpe was so much better than me I I could never take the gold medal yeah Hugo Weislander of Sweden um, once they tried to give him the first place prize he said I don't deserve it Jim Thorpe was the best uh, athlete. So he never took that gold medal. Um, and yes, 110 years later, 110 years too late, just last month, the International Olympic Committee set, set the record straight, made Jim Thorpe and put him back in the record books as the winner of those gold medals. And then his baseball career. Now, when we're saying it was it was spotty, per se, okay, you're the best yeah. football player in America, you just won the Catalan, and you also are playing in the baseball, like you're playing Major League Baseball. He had, it was up and down, it was just not, it wasn't, he wasn't the dominant player in baseball that he was in football, and he actually didn't start playing better until he was older and was playing in the minor leagues more. Yeah, I mean, he was better than Michael Jordan. <laughs> uh, but um, you're right, he, he, I don't think that John McGraw really gave him the opportunities to to show how good he could become. He did have trouble with the curveball, as so many great athletes do, you know, when they get into baseball. Um, but as I studied his career, um, he improved. And he had one really great season in the major leagues, playing for the Boston Braves in 1919. Um, he led the league in hitting for almost the entire year, was always good at stealing bases. And, you know, for that year, the sports sections in Boston, it was – Jim Thorpe on the Braves and Babe Ruth on the Red Sox. They sort of dominated the sports pages. And then after that, he was in the minors for quite a while and always hit over 300 after that. So I think it took him longer to develop as a baseball player. He was not as good at that as at football, but he became pretty darn good. And then we're getting ready for football season now. And, and to think that in 1915, there was teams like Canton and Oranga Indians and those things uh, that were playing. But he was the star player from 1915 to 1920 before what we know now know as the NFL. And when they came together in 1920 to form the NFL, they made him the first, I would say, commissioner, president or whatever, just to start the league. So he was there at the founding of the NFL and was the star player. Yeah, he started professional football in 1915 with the Canton Bulldogs when they were in the Ohio League, which was barely a league. It was pretty a ragtag outfit. Players could jump from team to team week by week, depending on who paid them more, um, which wasn't much in any case. Uh, pro football in that era was a secondary sport behind college football, behind Major League Baseball for certain, and even tennis and golf and boxing. Um, but Jim Thorpe was the name that helped the football, professional football rise. And, and they did make him the first commissioner or president in, tw in 1920, 
largely as a figurehead position. He was still a player coach at that time, um, but he was the person that everybody knew. And, um, you know, pro football historians say that Jim Thorpe's rise into pro football really helped the league um, become a major sport. Yeah, I mean, that was, it was certainly, I mean, to think what it is, I mean, you talked about, I had the stories, the little tidbits you had there, the fact that you could enter the league by paying $100, and I tell that to the right. Denver Broncos uh, owners, new owners <laughs> that paid $4.5 billion. Well, if you went back in 1922, you could have a team for $100. And then after he was done with football, I mean, your book, in it's The Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Just a dip. He was in movies and just did so many different things. Um, never got the wealth that you would expect that someone today oh. would ever had, but was kept himself busy doing lots of things, I would say. Well, you know, the, I think the most he ever got paid was maybe $300 a game in pro football, which was considered a lot of money. You know, you compare that to what are the contracts in baseball today, $240 million or something. So, yeah, he never... He never really had financial security. He also was overly generous, and he struggled with alcohol. Um, so, you know, the rest of his life was, was a constant struggle, but he never gave up. You're right. He, he, you know, he traveled from state to state. I think I document 20 states that he lived in. He took various jobs from, at one point during the Depression, digging ditches to then becoming very active, uh, you know, on the fringes of the Hollywood studios, um, he acted in more than 70 uh, movies, you know, mostly in bit parts, sometimes uncredited. But he became the leader of the 200 or 300 Native Americans um, who were in Southern California and wanted to be in the movies. And um, so often the studios were casting white people and dressing them up in grease paint or war paint. And Jim Thorpe became the spokesman to say, hey, you know, let, let Indians play Indians. Yeah, I mean, it's just... I guess, and they had a, they had a movie in the fifties on Jim Thorpe that was yeah. you said that was some it was a questionable even though he was consulting with the movie it wasn't like you felt like it did not portray him as well as you would thought he should have been portrayed. Well, it was a you know, Jim Thorpe All American starring Burt Lancaster, directed <laughs> by Michael Curtiz who directed Casablanca. You know, so it was in some ways a, a good movie and it was very sympathetic to Thorpe, but. Historically, it was wrong in every respect. You know, I mean, a lot of it was conflated, things that didn't happen. And what I had the most problem with it was that the narrator was not Jim Thorpe. It was Pop Warner, his <laughs> former coach at Carlisle. And the uh, implication of the narration was that if only Thorpe had listened more to, to, to uh, Warner and assimilated more better into... Uh, white society, he wouldn't have had the struggles that he had. And I found that to be very misleading. Well, I really, you know, your book is definitely bringing an appreciation towards him from a lot of people that that don't don't even, as I said, we bring up, people don't know who Bo Jackson is, let alone Jim Thorpe. So it's great that, uh -huh. and as you're going, the book just was released, it's available on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, everything. So I think for people who want to learn about the first, one of the first great athletes in American history, if not one of, if considered the greatest, your book is a perfect resource for that, and hopefully people will start appreciating more. Well, I certainly hope so. I ride so far so good. I mean, it, it's, it's being uh, well-received and read.
Well, most of you, I mean, you've had, you wrote books on Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Vince Lombardi, Roberto Clemente. So it's uh, definitely, it's in that genre of writing about uh, historical figures. And, and the, the meticulous research you did on this, it's just very hard. I mean, because as you said, there's so much about Jim Thorpe that is more fiction than fact, and you have to separate yeah. the two. And it, it's hard to doing it when you're researching back saying over 100 years ago. It certainly is, um, but that's what I try to do. Um, you know, to, to explore both the man, the real person, and the myth. Well, David, I really appreciate. It. I know you're very busy promoting the book, and thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports. Okay, Ira. Great talking with you. Great stuff there. David Moranis joining us here on Iron Sports. We're just about out of time, Ira, but what's your plans? Because this could be a big week for you. It's just going to be tennis. I'll tell you what. If you're a tennis fan or you love, I'm going to post on the internet. I'm going to give you all the matches. I love the U.S. Open. It's a great tournament. If you don't like tennis and you happen to be in New York, go to it. You'll enjoy it. It's fun. It's a great. It's fun. It's a great thing to go to. It's a great event. They have so much. It's not like to sit there in a stadium. There are a zillion stadiums. There are people who go to the U.S. Open just eat the whole time. I mean, you, you just go there, and there's about 150 restaurants you can eat at and different things to do, and there's games to play. You can hit tennis balls, see how fast you serve, all those things. And it's on this entire complex that it takes forever to walk from one side to the other. So I'm pumped to be at the U.S. Open this week. Thanks so much to David Moranis for popping by. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.